0: I'm Leonard Lopate. American social reformers created the first juvenile court right after the turn of the 20th century. They imagined a therapeutic court where informality, specially trained public servants, and a kindly all-knowing judge would assist children and families. But in her new book, The End of Family Court... Jane M. Spinnack argues that the procedures and policies of modern family courts reveal a heritage of racism, a disdain for poverty, and assimilationist norms intent on fixing children and families who are different. It's published by New York University Press and brings Jane M. Spinnack, the Edward Ross Arano Clinical Professor of Law Emerita at Columbia Law School, to our show now. Welcome!
1: Thank you very much, Leonard. I'm pleased to be here.
0: What was the rationale that progressive reformers gave for the creation of the first courts?
1: Well, there were really two. Um, the first was that children should not be treated as adults when they get into trouble. And everyone pretty much agreed continues to agree with that, that uh, children should be treated differently. And um, now we have the science that proves that, uh, not just our, our common sense. And the second reason for the court was the desire to fix families, to fix the children and their families. These were largely... Uh, immigrant populations that were flooding into the country and 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 filling up um, the big cities in the in the east and the Midwest, and the social reformers wanted to do some good things like create parks and libraries and recreation. Kindergartens, but they also wanted to create a way to turn these families into what they considered proper Americans. And so there was a real assimilationist thrust to, um, this court, which was going to fix them by turning them into, uh, people with, with middle class mores that, um, mm-hmm. You know, represented what the the early the earlier settlers already had established,
0: and it was called the great idea.
1: Um, well, I have called it the oh. great idea um, because um, the court seems not. You know, if you if you look at it objectively. Um, isn't this a great idea? We'll treat children differently. We'll, we'll use a benevolent judge and helpers like probation officers and, and social workers to, um, make these children what we want them to be and ultimately to make their families what, what they want to be. And judges will problem solve. Judges will figure out what services families need. And, and that, you know, that's how I, I have characterized it as a great idea because Hmm. it has stuck for the last 100 and almost 25 years.
0: And you say that it uh, started initially in the cities of the, the East, the North, and the Midwest. How quickly did the idea spread?
1: Well, it spread quite quickly west. Um, by the second decade of the 20th century, there were juvenile courts um, all the way to California. Where they were not started as quickly was in the south.
0: Hmm. Well, they were called um, juvenile took- courts, not family courts at that point.
1: At that point, they were called juvenile courts. That's because of um,
0: worries that children were being punished as adults when they got into trouble with the law?
1: Exactly, exactly. And so the idea was that the judge was going to treat them instead of punish them. And there, that idea remains, even though right from the beginning there were um Judges who saw punishment as the right way to approach children, maybe slightly differently, but instead of jails, they were detention facilities instead of prisons, they were reform schools, so there was a lot of punishment that went along with that treatment.
0: did it matter where the court was located how How different was? Were the the ways that these children were dealt with?
1: Well, I would say there overall, I don't think it mattered. It mattered a bit more who the judge was. Mm. Um, some judges didn't change their practices at all. They they um, were very reluctant to. Diminish punishment. They believe that, um, that was the best way to control these children. Some judges, um, uh, tried very hard, uh, to, um, treat them differently, to, to try to get them to change their ways. Um, but we can't build a system around particular judges, even though that's something we keep trying to do, thinking that, oh, if we can just do all the work the way a particular judge does, does the work, we might, this system would work. But in fact, it hasn't. And what happens is you have a terrific judge who follows the law, who tries to do the right thing. And then that judge retires and the next mm-hmm. judge that comes along says, well, I have all this discretion. I'm going to do it my way.
0: And weren't children considered dependent if their parents were unable to care for them, mostly because of poverty and the inability to provide child care?
1: Exactly. When the court was started, um, there were three categories, really, of children who were being brought into the court. And this was true across the country. They were children who were actually breaking the law or alleged to be breaking the law. And that was delinquency. Then there were um, children who were misbehaving but not actually breaking the law. And at the time, they were also characterized as delinquent, even though what they were doing was running away from home, not listening to their parents, maybe having sex, maybe, um, you know, doing things that the adults in their lives didn't want them to do, being truant. And for most of the court's history, those children were considered delinquent. Um, Not until late in the 20th century were they separated into a category called status offenses. And then the third area was dependency. And that was really, um, it's a category that today encompasses neglect and abuse, but it really means that that families, for whatever reason, um, were unable to care for their children, um, mostly because of poverty and the other inequalities that these families faced.
0: But the courts didn't have the capacity to provide things that these families needed, like better housing, better nutrition and schooling. So what did they tend to do?
1: Well, that's the conundrum that continues to exist today. From the very beginning of the court, um, there was a recognition that that um, it would be great if the services that children needed um, and families needed were provided outside of the court in their communities. But the juvenile court was actually the first place that when there was state intervention, other than in prisons or for adults or in houses of refuge, but the juvenile court was really established to provide those services. And in fact, it couldn't, just as you said, um, Almost as soon as the court was founded, there were activists and critics of the court who said, listen, what families need is a basic income. They need child care. They need health care. They need um, good housing and nutrition. The same things we're saying today. Um, and the court couldn't provide those things then, and they can't provide them now.
0: So why what did the, the courts flourish if they couldn't accomplish their goals? Didn't well, uh, supporters like the Federal Children's Bureau begin to doubt their effectiveness and encourage more community-based assistance?
1: They did. Um, one, of, one of the reasons why the court continued to flourish was that um, the judges in the court were very good publicists for the court. They liked to talk about the cases that they felt they were successes in, and they pretty much ignored the ways in which they weren't succeeding and so the public and the press um believed them for the most part and and so that helped the second thing was that as as the court developed and many of its early supporters, including the Children's Bureau, the Federal Children's Bureau, began to see that the court was not stopping delinquency. It was not um, stopping recidivism of young people getting into trouble. It was not, uh, it didn't have the means really to provide families with what they needed. Um, so they ended up these families ended up being blamed, uh, in court rather than given what they needed. Um, and so you did begin to see in the, particularly in the 1920s and the 1930s, um, traditional supporters of the court, like the Children's Bureau, trying to move away from that original idea of a therapeutic court that was going to fix. Uh, families and children toward a belief that if there were agencies in the community who could help, that was better. And only children who could not, or families who could not, um, flourish with that help in the community should, should be sent to the court for the court to determine what should happen um, because because the community assistance um, was not enough. In fact, um, that community assistance has never been enough. And even though decade after decade, report after report, saying the best thing we can do for families is to provide support in the communities. Uh, Children and families did not get what they needed uh, and were continued to be blamed for their poverty, for their dependency, and um, sent into the court for solutions.
0: And is it fair to say that now, more than a century later, children and families continue in some cases to be failed by these courts?
1: Absolutely. Um, they are not only failed by these courts, they are failed by our entire uh, social system. Um, the families that began in the court were mostly immigrant families. As the court expanded and eventually developed in the South, um, many more families of color found themselves, particularly black families, found themselves brought to this court. Um, at the time, um, both in the South and in the North through, you know, beginning in the 1920s and 30s, um, reports about the court were already finding out that black children were disproportionately brought into the court, and punish disproportionately. We We punish far more
0: than white children?
1: Far more than white children. Um, And um, the services that were sometimes available to white families were never provided to black families. Instead, you had a development within the black community, especially in the South, of the community trying to take care of those children. Um, It's a bit ironic because the black community, especially black women's clubs, tried to get the court to accept that these children needed help from the court itself, and at the same time they were trying to protect these children from the worst of what the court might do. Especially in the Jim
0: Crow South.
1: Exactly. But, you know, very, very early in the the 20th century, this was going on. As the courts expanded and began to accept black children and other children of color, um, supposedly for assistance, um, the disproportionality grew. Um, You know, the... In New York um, and in Chicago, where the the first court began, um, there were studies done, um, especially after the race riots in both cities. Um, in the early 20th century, there were studies done uh, that showed that black children were much more likely to be arrested. They were much more likely to be sent to court. They were much more likely to be sent for far less serious matters. And they were far more likely to be punished. Um, every one of the reports... <laughs> Up until today. So you had these reports of, to study the court and to study what was happening within the black communities. And each time, uh, the reports would say, this is happening because of segregation. Mm -hmm. This is happening because black families are, are kept within, uh, real real uh, tight areas of these cities where they are not getting the the supports they need they're not getting the services they need you know there was a study done that showed in the entire country there were 4 40 nurseries that would accept black students in the entire country wow. in the middle of the century and that's in um, the
0: north as well
1: it's in the north as well the I would say that in the North, at least, um, many of the social service agencies continued to study this problem and to um, publicize what wasn't available, and even some of the judges um, in New York were were very concerned and kept writing to the mayor saying you know we can't do our job um if you're not going to provide the supports um, and try to diminish the discrimination that's going on against these families.
0: My guest today on Leonard Lopate at Large here on WBAI New York 99.5 FM and streaming live at WBAI.org is Jane M. Spinak. S-P-I-N-A-K. Her book, The End of Family Court, How Abolishing the Court Brings Justice to Children and Families, is published by New York University Press. Was the uh, state held to have a, a paternal instinct uh, interest in the in the child rather than a prosecutorial one, and did that eliminate its obligation to provide a child accused of a crime with the opportunity to make a defense?
1: Well, the when the court began, the idea was that you didn't need due process, you didn't need lawyers because. The judge and the probation officer were going to, um, you know, sometimes the judge said, I act like a super parent. Sometimes the judge said, I have the ability as a kindly, benevolent person to decide what would be best for this child. So there was no due process in the beginning, and there was no... um, there wasn't the alternative um to say well i'd i'd rather be um i i'd rather be tried in a court where there is some due process um over time as starting really in the nineteen fifties moving into the early sixties, there was a greater understanding that these courts uh, were not doing the parental job they were supposed to be doing that children were being uh, arrested and and brought to court and punished without any uh, due process rights and so there was both a recognition of that in the late 1950s and then into the 1960s um, during the period when the Warren court was um, developing the due process rights we have today, they were also looking at this court and determining when should um, a child receive due process rights.
0: I want to get and, to Abe Vor- Fortas in just a moment, but okay. I still have some follow up questions to uh, our previous co- uh, bits of conversation. Um uh, how, what what was covered here were truants and runaways considered criminals
1: yeah, I mean that's um, for me that 's really the heart of my book is the fact that children um, were defined as delinquents if they misbehave, so as I said before, they were truant, they were runaway they didn't listen to their parents they got into all the kinds of trouble that most um, adolescents get into at some time in their lives and you know i have a i have a great quote in the book um, from uh someone who was responsible for so-called troubled girls um, in one of the training schools upstate in New York at, who said our chief task and aim with delinquent girls is to protect them from the natural consequences of being girls. Hmm. So clearly um, So not just knew, racism,
0: we have sexism to deal with here.
1: <laughs> yes, that's right. Oh, absolutely. So girls were always much more likely to be brought to court for those reasons. Um, for for uh, not paying attention to the rules. Not, I have several examples in in my book of of parents bringing their daughters to court um, because they didn't know what else to do with them, and unfortunately, that is true today. Even though today delinquency is is not does not cover what we now call status offenses, and we call them status offenses solely because they're minors. They're under 18. What they do um, to misbehave could not be considered a crime for an adult. So we have this entire category of misbehaving um, that only children and youth can be held responsible for. And not surprisingly, the the young people who are held responsible for misbehaving are disproportionately children of color, particularly black and Native children, Native American children. Um, And that's in large part because those are the families that we survey. Those are the families where there's the heaviest – Police presence in the communities, um, and so and so, it's not surprising that these are the children that end up in court.
0: Couldn't courts decide, in what they claim was the interest of the child, to have the child severely punished or incarcerated for a lengthy time?
1: They absolutely could, um, and many children were the. Best example, I think, is um, the young boy named Gerald Galt, whose whose name became um, synonymous with the right to counsel for children. Because Gerald, it became a
0: supreme case, a Supreme Court case.
1: Exactly, and nineteen sixty-seven. Yep, and Gerald was um, made a lewd phone call. If he had been an adult. Maybe he'd have to pay a fee or maybe he'd get thirty days in the local jail. And Gerald was brought to court and he wa he didn't get notice of the petition. He didn't have a lawyer. There was no hearing. And the judge decided for this lewd phone call he would be sent um away to the reform school, the state reform school, for the next six years until he was an adult.
0: Until he was 21. Um, He was 15. Uh, He was sent to the Arizona State Industrial School
1: simply for making an
0: obscene phone call. If he'd been an adult, wouldn't the maximum punishment he could have received be a $50 fine or, at worst, a couple of months in jail?
1: Yes, that's right. Um, but the judge decided he was not happy with what Gerald did and, and punished him it by essentially locking him away for the next six years. Fortunately, um, the case eventually was, um, there was a Arizona, um, uh, lawyer who was connected named Amelia Lewis who was connected to the ACLU and eventually, um, they began to appeal uh, Gerald's case and it went all the way up to the Supreme Court um, in 1967 when um, Justice Fortis, uh, who is really considered probably the most pro-child hmm. justice in the history of the court um, and pro-children's rights, um, wrote an opinion. Which essentially said, um, "There's, there was no due process here. There was, you know, Gerald had no way to respond. Uh, he was given no opportunity um, to have a lawyer. He had no opportunity to present a defense." And the the sentence was disproportionate for what happened.
0: He said and that s- he said that it it went against the Fourteenth Amendment's guarantees of a right to sufficient notice, right to counsel, right to confrontation of witnesses, and right against self incrimination. Uh, now, would something similar have happened if if uh, if Galt had been a, an adult?
1: Well. We already had the case in um, uh, in the Gideon case of, of adults having a right to counsel. Um, and so this was clearly um, an expansion of the right to counsel to young people who find themselves in court. And during that period, the court was really determining all of those issues about Um, uh, uh, being proven beyond a reasonable doubt in a criminal proceeding, having Miranda rights read to you so you knew that you were giving up whether or you were not giving up your right to uh, remain silent. So it was a period of real, um, real, Revolutionary change, uh, in terms of the kind of rights that were being given both to adults and to, uh, children. Um, and it, it had a tremendous impact on, on the juvenile court. One of the, one of the judges, one juvenile court judge called it a nuclear bomb on the court. Um, because the judges were not interested in due process. They were interested in their jurisdiction to make decisions in the way that they thought best. And following the Galt decision, the National Council... Uh, we- it was then the National Council of Juvenile Court Judges, it's now of family and juvenile court judges, issued a resolution saying, we disagree that any of our jurisdictions should be narrowed in so that we have the full capacity to make the decisions that we think will be best for children.
0: We have to take a little break here, but we'll come back to Abe in the Supreme Court, and another decision after the break. This is WBAI New York 99.5 FM and streaming live at WBAI.org. I hope you're enjoying my conversation with Jane Spinnack. If you sign up to become a member of WBAI during today's show with a contribution of $50 or more, you can receive a free copy of her book, The End of Family Court, How Abolishing the Court Brings Justice to Children and Families. To do that, just go online to give to WBAI.org or call 212 212- 209-2950 during today's show. We'll be happy to send you a copy. That's give and the number two WBAI.org or 212 209-2950. But don't forget to make that fifty dollar donate or more donation in the name of London Low at Large. And we thank you very much. And return now to Jane M. Spinak. We're talking about Her book, The End of Family Court, from New York University Press. She is the Edward Ross Arano Clinical Professor of Law Emerita at Columbia University. And we were talking about a decision that uh, Judge Fortas made in the Supreme Court in 1967. But a year earlier, he made another momentous decision, didn't he? What did he write in his majority decision in Kent versus United States?
1: Well, in Kent, um, Justice as Fortis uh, said, a young person, uh, this seems to be that young people end up in a kangaroo court. They're neither given the protections of what the original juvenile court was supposed to be, nor are they given the due process rights that they deserve. And Kent was about when... Um, do judges have to have a hearing before they transfer a child from the juvenile court to an adult court? Um, I do hope, Leonard, that we'll get to talk a bit about child protection because, of course, that's the other big area of state intervention we can talk about it in right family away. life.
0: But I, I was uh, just uh, wanted to point out that, Fortis uh, said the existing system might be the worst of both worlds.
1: (laughs) That's right. He certainly did, and it is. (laughs) Okay, And unfortunately, it has remained so. Despite these rights being provided to young people, um, there are many examples of uh, judges continuing to ignore due process in these courts. In the 2010s, the Obama administration did a number, the Department of Justice did a number of investigations, which showed that uh, judges in many courts around the country um, were still acting as if Galt had not been um, decided and that their jurisdiction had not been narrowed uh, to require due
0: process. Didn't the federal government begin requiring states to uh, begin uh, to change things in the 1970s and 1980s?
1: Well, the biggest change was really the separation of um, delinquency from status offenses. That was in part... um, the federal government was concerned and there were um, several presidential commissions actually under both president johnson and president nixon um, that that were very concerned that children who misbehave but don't break the law don't belong in that court um, the national council of judges uh were not happy with those uh Commission reports either. Um, and But there was this separation, and the federal government passed a a juvenile law um, in the mid-70s, which said to states, um, we want you to stop locking up kids who misbehave but don't break the law, and if you do that, we will increase your funding. Um, So many states... Uh, New York included, stopped um, putting young people charged with status offenses into secure facilities. And, um, but there were many other states that chose not to take the money and continue to lock young people up.
0: Are there different family courts all around a, a, a state? How many family courts are there in New York City alone?
1: Well, in New York City, we have five, one for each borough. And in the rest of the state, each county has its own family court. Um, so and, I assume
0: that if you do something in one area, you might receive a very different kind of treatment by the court than if you did it in another one.
1: Absolutely. Better
0: to be in Brooklyn than Queens, let's say.
1: Yeah. Um, yes, and and even... Um, I have to say that in the in the mid nineties I took a leave from Columbia and I ran the juvenile rights division of legal aid and I I'm would going say, to say that, that. you col- were the
0: attorney in charge of the of that
1: I was, and we at the time it was really the height of the number of children um, in foster care there were close to forty thousand children. Mm. It was also a time when the in delinquency, it was a high point, and now the the numbers have gone way down. But during that period, I would say, even within New York City, each court had a different culture. Um, and so based you have on to the know judge, how,
0: based on the judge or just tradition,
1: I would say it was based both on the less on the individual judge and more on the sense of the whole way the system worked in a particular borough. So for example in Brooklyn um everybody was far more feisty and fighting um than the Bronx. Hmm. Um in Manhattan there was I would say more hearings, more more motions filed, more um, attention to the uh, details of due process. So each borough was a bit different.
0: When did they? So you
1: can imagine what it's like around the country.
0: When did the juvenile courts become family courts, and did it mean that they began covering more things like divorces and such?
1: Yeah, the there had always been. Uh, from the beginning of the court, really. Judges who thought the only way they were going to help children was to help their families. And so there was always a, a push to bring more and more of the issues that affected families into family court. Um, these were, however, remember, mostly poor families. Family court has never been not in New York and not in most of the rest of the country, a place um, for people who have money. Um, and it is always also been disproportionately a place for people of color, so much so that sometimes you get visitors from other other countries saying we're where is the court for white people? Mm-hmm. That's how much uh, uh, these courts are filled with people of color. Um, but the judges who wanted to um, make the juvenile court into a family court really wanted to do it so that for for several reasons, one to be more efficient, which is fair. You didn't want families going from small court to small court to small court on overlapping issues. That's a that that certainly is fair. But they also wanted to have um, jurisdiction over the whole family, and as the child protection and child welfare cases became more and more a part of the court's business, it made, uh, you know, to the judges and to many other people, it made much more sense um, that they all be in in the same court. So really since the 1970s, um, Many, not all courts around the country, they have different names. Sometimes they're called juvenile courts, sometimes children's courts, sometimes family courts, sometimes dependency courts. But most of them ha- or domestic relations courts. Most of them have overlapping jurisdiction about the family. And some of them have um all the jurisdiction about My- the family.
0: My guest is Jane M. Spinnack, her book, The End of Family Court, How Abolishing the Court Brings Justice to Children and Families, from New York University Press. This is WBAI New York, 99.5 FM, and streaming live at WBAI.org. Okay, you want to get to child protection issues.
1: Right.
0: Go ahead, please. So, sorry? I said, go ahead, please.
1: Okay. <laughs> Well, I think it's very important that um, we understand that the kinds of cases that used to be called dependency cases and now are generally called neglect and abuse cases um, just uh, exploded in the, particularly in the last third of this century, and there were a couple of reasons for that. One was that um particularly in the south after um, after brown many states who that did that did not want to uh desegregate their schools um, began applying what are called uh suitability rules to um, black families which meant that they had to they had to comply with whatever the ideal in that state was of what a mother was supposed to be. And needless to say, they continued to find that these mothers were not suitable. And so they cut them off of um, public assistance. Um, the federal government said you can't just cut them off from public assistance. If they're really unsuitable, then those children don't belong at home. Well, the end result was thousands upon thousands of black families were cut off from any form of public assistance, and their children were put into foster care where there was no um, mechanism for them to be returned home. At the same time, in the... Um, early 60s, a doctor named Henry Kemp had determined that very severe injuries to very young children were probably caused um, by trauma inflicted by parents. And he called this a battered child syndrome. Mm -hmm. And he recommended um, that doctors really look out for this. What Dr. Kemp did not recommend is that there be developed uh, a reporting system like the one we have today in which we have not just doctors but teachers and everyone who works with families thinking that the way they help children who may be neglected or abused is to call a child abuse hotline and report them. What's important to understand is that this, we know that between 10 and 20 percent of the cases um, that involve child maltreatment um, are serious, that they need to be looked at carefully because children are actually in danger of either Extreme neglect, like starvation or extreme sexual or physical abuse. The other 80% is, is, falls into what we call neglect, but is really about poverty, inequality, the lack of services, the lack of, of, uh, uh the basic needs that families have. Um, I just saw the other day that 85% of the families reported for maltreatment, um, live on less than 200% hmm. of the poverty level in this country. Um, so most of the families are poor.
0: Now you propose, um, okay, continue. I'm sorry.
1: No, no, that's okay. I, so what I wanted to say was, Instead of figuring out how to help those families, though the war on poverty definitely did bring many children out of poverty, but at the same time, we were creating this child protective system that wasn't protecting children. Um, Most of the cases today are still screened out. In 2019, there were over four million reports on more than seven million children. And most of those cases never reach family court. They end up, as a matter of fact, in most years, it's about a half a million cases that will get to court. And whether they end up with a determination that there really was neglect or abuse, it is an even smaller number. Um, but that that reporting has totally disrupted hmm. many families in many communities because um, they feel like they are always being reported and um, surveyed Investigated, because the states are required to investigate. So even if it goes nowhere, um, they have a record of having been investigated. Um, and in and and as a historian, Tina Lee said, in in these neighborhoods, children say, "Has your mother caught a case?" Meaning, <laughs> have you been reported? Um, and is, is the local social service agency surveying you or charging you with, with a case?
0: We have just a few more minutes left, but uh, I was wondering, you propose concrete steps toward abolishing the court. What are they, and what are the alternatives? Can't they just be remade and improved?
1: Um, well, when I began working on this book, That's what I thought, Leonard. I thought we could reform the court. Uh, I've been involved in lots of reform efforts of this court during my career and I still believe that. The more I dug into the history of the court and the more I listened to young people and parents impacted by this court, some of whom were my clients or my students' clients and some I just know from having worked here so long, um, I realized this court can't be made into a better uh, version of itself. It needs first to be shrunk, to really think hard about what doesn't belong in court, like status offenses, like minor crimes that just end up having children... Uh, Penetrate deeper and deeper into the criminal legal system the
0: minimum age of criminal responsibility
1: right most sta- half of our states have no minimum age in new york it 's twelve Wow um, the international standard is fourteen hmm. that 's the standard we should have. All other children should be um, given the services they need so th- and w- along with their families. Um, so that they they don't need to be treated as a criminal. they need to be understood as an adolescent. Um, we also need to to pare down the jurisdiction around what I now call family regulation but is known as child protection or or child welfare and to do that, we really need to take, into account the recommendations of um, very influential um, commissions, including one by the ABA and another the U.S. Board of uh, Neglect and Abuse, both who earlier, uh, toward the end of the 20th century, recommended much narrower jurisdiction. Families, if, if the state is going to intervene in family life to keep a child safe, the child really has to be not safe, really in imminent danger of harm. And instead, we allow children to be brought for all kinds of reasons that are mostly about poverty, you know, leaving in a some child. Some cases
0: un- are anonymously reported, aren't they?
1: Some are mandated reporting. In some states, you have anonymous reporting, which mm-hmm. is often, uh, nothing more than, um, kind of harassment mm-hmm. often. Um, you know, the neighbor calls up because, because she doesn't like the way something's going on in her neighbor's house. Um, so, so we need to stop that. Also, and we, we, we have, have to
0: end it very soon. So please just okay. sum up.
1: All right. I think the most important thing we need to do is to move services and supports into the community where the community itself, neighbors, friends can provide supports, provide services so that very, very few families ever have to be inside that building.
0: I've been speaking with Jane M. Spinack, her book, The End of Family Court, How Abolishing... The Court Brings Justice to Children and Families, as published by New York University Press. It's been a great pleasure talking to you, even though it's a disturbing topic.
1: Thank you. I'm so glad you wanted to cover it.
0: And that brings us to the end of our show. If you're just discovering this program and would like to hear more about one-hour deep-dive interviews, You can access our over 800 past shows streaming on demand at WBAI.org. Our podcast, which has surpassed one million plays, is available on iTunes, Apple, and everywhere else you get your podcasts. And if you'd like to write to me, my email address is LeonardLopate at WBAI.org. Before I sign off today, I need to ask you to support WBAI to keep the show coming to you weekdays from 1 to 2 p.m. and to keep this station coming to you because we've been going through some pretty rough financial times. So we're asking all of our listeners who have the means to do so to make a contribution at whatever level they're comfortable with by calling 212-209-2950 or by going online to to give2wbai.org right now. That's give and the number 2, wbai.org. We need to help to keep bringing you this unique in-depth content, information you usually don't get anywhere else. And as I mentioned earlier, anyone who makes a contribution of $50 or more in the name of Leonard Lopate at Large right now can receive a copy of the book we've been discussing, The End of Family Court by Jane M. Spinnack. So why not make that call right now to 212-209-2950 or go online give to WBAI.org and you might also consider becoming a sustaining member what we call a BAI buddy for $10, $15, $20, $25 however much you're comfortable with a month it allows us to plan for the future and you can keep it going until you decide to stop it but we will be happy uh, and grateful and say thank you with a BAI tote bag to anyone who signs up to become a BAI buddy for $10 a month or more but either way hope you'll call right now because uh, we rely on listener donations. Um, it allows us to be completely free speech radio. So if you listen regularly to this show, please give to WBAI.org or call 212-209-2950 to play your part in keeping this historic station the only one on the New York radio dial that's 100% listener-sponsored and live and thriving with tax-deductible support. And we hope you can join us again tomorrow when my guest will be Bob Henley. We'll see you then.